Okay, welcome to No Excuses, Real Inspiration, hosted by Scott Marshall. So welcome, Kellen, to the show. Thank you. I really appreciate you giving up your time. So for the audience, just give a brief intro of who you are and what you currently do. Uh, thank you. I will. But before I do, Scott, I want to honor you. A, la a podcast is a labor of love and someone that's doing what you're doing, which is taking time and effort, even while you're recovering from COVID, to add good to the world, to lift people's spirits and hearts. I honor that and I'm grateful that you're doing that. And I wanted that on your show to because it's important to, to recognize people that are doing that. So thank you. Thank you. You're welcome. My, um, so who I am today, I'm a coach. I'm a catalyst for personal transformation. I think of coaching as being in the people encouragement business. So I have clients all over the world in the coaching practice I built over the last 12 years. And that's all I do. I mean, from I have one goal right now, and that is to help 10 million people discover, develop, and serve with their divine gifts. And so that's all I really do from Morning tonight, I, I don't have work and then I go play. That, that is the life that I have. And whether I'm doing music, which I do, or writing books, which I've written a whole pile of them, or I'm on this show or some other show or coaching my clients, it's all really focused on that thing. So that's Kellen in a nutshell. Ah, fantastic. So let's talk about your story. Where did it all start? It started when I was very young, like all of our stories do. I was born in a two-parent home, middle-class-ish family in San Francisco Bay Area in California. I, uh, it looked pretty normal from the outside. My mom was young. She had a, a very, very strict idea of how kids should behave and connected to religion and that sort of thing. And so the discipline that she used to force us to behave was... Today would be felony child abuse, and we would have been removed from the home. I, you know, she beat the crap out of me a lot and did other things that are not okay. <clears throat> um, and long since forgiven all that, that's not an issue. But what it did for me, I mean, it went on my entire childhood. I remember in high school, even as a teenager, getting dressed last in the locker room because I didn't want people, the other boys, to see that I was black and blue. I was embarrassed and ashamed and it never crossed my mind that I could get help or any of that because you know you just didn't do that so I left home when I was 17 but when I did but by that time I was convinced <clears throat> to the core of my soul that I was fundamentally flawed there was nothing like I, I wasn't okay and I wouldn't ever be and so I I believed with all my heart that <clears throat> everything that was wrong in my wor world was my fault and that I had to do everything I could to somehow make it up, get better, fix it, something, and and at the same time believing that I was not okay. So that combination of trying to prove I was okay and believing that I was not okay led me for the next 35 years until I was 52 on a roller coaster of creating success financially and being, you know, creating career success. And then sabotaging that by doing something that would end that employment or that position. I did the same thing with relationships. I created relationships with women. I got married and then divorced. And I did that again, and I did it again. So I was married and divorced three times. 
I created real, the one thing I knew how to do well was make money, so I kept doing that over and over again. And I lived basically a double life where on the outside it looked like, wow, it's all good. And behind the scenes, it was a ah, kind of a horrific disaster with, with all the failed relationships. And I was in and out of rehab. I had alcohol problems and drug problems. And I had high enough positions that, you know, those were kind of secret and nobody knew and there was one time when I was working on the governor's staff in one state and the chief of staff dragged me into her office and told me they were worried that my scandals were going to bring down the administration. I mean, they were at that level of, of stuff. And so that was just my sort of dual life in the fast lane life of outward this way and behind the scenes a, a total emotional wreck and that went on all of my adult life for 35 years from when I left home at 17 until I was 52. In 2007, which is when I was 52, um, <clears throat> I had a divine intervention and, and it changed the course of everything. It was August <clears throat> of 2007 and I came home on a Friday night and I had four of my 10 children living with me. I was single again for the third time. Three were grown up and married and four were teenagers and with me and the younger three were, it's embarrassing to say this, but with one of my exes. And I was getting ready to go out and party for the weekend. And it would have been, you know, till Monday or Tuesday or something. And it, suddenly I felt like I had to turn on the television. Now that doesn't sound like anything interesting, except I didn't know how. I wasn't a TV watcher, and when I went to do it, I realized I didn't know how to turn it on. I'd had the TV guys come and put in the biggest, you know, coolest whatever you could buy, because that's what you buy when you have s stupid amounts of money, but I didn't watch it, so I didn't know how to turn it on. So I asked one of my daughters, and she turned on the TV, you know, threw the remote at me, idiot, and walked out of the room, and it landed on a television program that I'd never heard of. But that was not surprising, since I'd never heard of most of them. It was titled Intervention, which, if you know, is a reality TV show about um, people who stage interventions for busted loved ones. The protagonist in this particular episode was a high-ranking executive with a cocaine problem. At that time, I had a $3,000 a week cocaine addiction, and I was making so much money that that didn't matter. And so I watched essentially myself on the screen for about 10 minutes. And I said, yeah, I'm not watching this crap. And I turned it off and did some other stuff and got ready to go out. And um, before I left, I, I, I just had to turn on the television again. So I did. And to my surprise, that program started over at the beginning. And no, I don't have a DVR to record it. I don't have a recorder. And no, it wasn't on the schedule. And no, it can't do that. I got it. But it did. And it freaked me out so much that I didn't go out. I stayed and I, I watched the program. And I, I, after what, no, it didn't go well. The guy yelled at his family and didn't accept any help. And it went poorly. And so I watched it, and then I went to bed instead of going out because I was, like, 
I'm supposed to watch this thing. And I did. And even though it went badly, I went to bed. So when I went to bed, then I went to hell. What I mean by that is I, I found myself, it felt like I was in a theater somewhere out of, out of body. And I was in the audience and there was a stage and on the stage, the whole parade of my life went by, not quickly, but slowly. And it was really focused on suffering. And it started with, you know, the suffering that had been inflicted on me as a kid with all the abuse and then went on to all the suffering that I had inflicted on everybody else as a, you know, failed partner and a addict and a, you know, all the stuff that had happened in my life. And it was long and it was intense. And I've never, I can't describe how it felt. But after a long time, a voice said to me softly, but clearly, it is enough. I woke up and the sun was shining in my windows in the bedroom, which was weird because the windows faced west. And I got up and I realized that it was five o'clock Saturday afternoon. So I'd been somewhere for nearly 18 hours. And I got up and realized that I'd been invited to change my life. I had no idea what to do or how to do it or what had to come next, but I knew something had to change. So I threw away all the stuff I had laying around, which is probably a thousand dollars worth of drugs and quit cold turkey that day, 3000 bucks a week to zero in one day. But that was the first half that got me sober, but it didn't do anything about the depression and self-loathing that had got me there in the first place. So that was the second half of this intervention, divine intervention. And that happened two weeks later. I went back to work on Monday and um, in the position I was in, I used to get a lot of free stuff because I was I made important decisions for that affected other companies. I used to get free tickets to this and free expensive bottles of booze and whatever. And one of the things I got was a free pair of tickets to see Yo-Yo Ma in concert. Now, if you know classical music, you know who that is. And if you don't, that's fine. But in the classical world, that's, ah, you know, he's as good as it gets. And so I thought, well, it'd be a real shame to waste this other ticket because I was single, like I mentioned. And so I asked in one of the groups that I manage or in the groups who likes classical music. And some lady in one of the groups said, well, I do. And I looked at her and I said, have I ever given you anything before? And she said, no. I said, okay, fine. See you there. Gave her the ticket and we met at the venue and concert was spectacular. And I got to remember now I'm two weeks now stone cold sober. Halfway through the show, I had this feeling come over me that I recognized from two weeks before. And this voice in my head said, <clears throat> you need to marry this woman. And I said, you're insane. I've screwed that up three times officially with some other messes in between. That's not happening. Later that night, uh, we were backstage meeting everybody. And because, of course, they were backstage passes and feeling came back and said, <clears throat> comma, and you need to tell her tonight. And so I argued like crazy because like, you know, she can have me arrested for harassment and, 
you know, I mean, she works for me and some of them, I don't even know. I mean, come on. I don't know her that well at all. I can't, but you don't win those arguments. So I did. And it went about like you would have expected. Are you out of your mind? What are you talking about? But she didn't have me arrested. So that was the good news. Uh, she, she went home and after over the next couple of weeks, she had her own set of experiences. And about two weeks after the concert, she resigned her career, uh, which was, she had a really good job. And I walked away from millions of dollars of contracts and we walked off into the sunset together. And about two and a half months ago, we celebrated our 14th wedding anniversary. Now, as, as, in, as crazy and amazing as that story is, the thing that's important about it was that she was the angel that was sent to help me deal with the depression. I had never in my adult life talked to anyone about what was going on in my heart, my life, my feelings, or anything. So she found people for me to talk to. She taught me how to have a friend. She taught me how to be a friend. She taught me how to tell the truth, which I learned to lie as a kid to protect myself, and I lied about whatever I needed to, and I was really good at remembering everything. So I had to learn how to be a human being. and. That, you know, I've asked her a bunch of times, like, what on earth prompted you to quit your career and walk off into the sunset with a drug addict? I mean, like, what were you thinking? And she said, I have no idea. I just knew to the core of my soul it was the right thing to do. So that was the invitation uh, that was issued. You know, invitations from the divine don't come with an instruction manual, but it was you know, wa walking away from all that and starting over, which I did, we did. And since that time, I walked away, I went, left the industry, left the whole thing. And <clears throat> we built now a coaching practice and a complete different business focused on helping people who are looking to level up, to change their lives, to not just overcome mental illness or depression or addiction, but people that want to get the most out of their lives. And so my objective right now is to help 10 million people discover, develop, and serve with their divine gifts. So that was the story of how the transformation took place. And it wasn't easy and it wasn't fast. There was a period of a few years, first four years or so, where we had to get to know each other, which we didn't, and to work on my own struggles and all the rest. But that, uh, that took place, and now we're business partners and moving forward with that goal. Ah, fantastic. It's, you know, that's a unique story on its own. <laughs> you know, that's one in a million. <laughs> I, I know, and it, what people need, to, the thing I really want to emphasize is, look, I, I recognize how incredible that story is. But the change and the work afterward wasn't easy and it wasn't magic. There was no Harry Potter wand that tapped me on the head and changed my life, who I was being or anything else. The invitation was astounding, and I believe it was that way because I was so hard-headed and I needed a two-by-four. Okay. 
But all the work to accept the invitation, to say yes, to move forward into the unknown and to figure out what to do and to go start talking to people and tell the truth and do things I'd never done in my whole life. The work still had to happen. There was no magic that, that sort of wished any of that away. That all had to happen. Yeah. And for yourself, so let's talk about how, you know, you went cold turkey and, and how your life changed, you know, going dramatically from, you know, having an addiction and then suddenly you're not doing that anymore. Well, the real addiction was to self-loathing. So the drugs and the alcohol, which were the symptoms, that stopped. But the feelings that I wasn't valuable or wasn't worth anything, that was the stuff that took the work. And you can't deal with those things if you're high all the time. So the addiction had to stop so that the other addiction, which was the core of the problem, could actually get worked on in sobriety with people you know, with me connected to reality and everything else. So the, the focus was, okay, now I'm not doing these substances, but I need to learn to tell the truth. And I had to start talking gratefully to, to, to you know, shrinks and stuff. And the first three or four, I, I didn't even know how to tell the truth to them. I tried to control the situation and make it sound different than it was. And Learning how to just be vulnerable and, and talk was a whole new world for me. And we got to remember, I'm 52 years old, and so, and I'm used to being in charge of everything. And so learning how to tell the truth, be vulnerable, even to counselors, that was a project. And I'm sure the first two or three counselors that I had thought I was a, a, a nutcase or a, a useless client because I didn't tell them the truth. I didn't even know I wasn't telling the truth. I, I, it took me layers of sort of taking this all apart to figure out any of it, what to do with any of it. So that was the work that had to happen. I was grateful not to be high anymore. And the aftermath physically of addiction is not fun. So withdrawals and struggles, but that was, to be truthful, that was smaller, far smaller than the taking apart my psyche and my behavior and my, you know, the hate, hatred of myself. That was the hard work. Yeah. And how do you motivate yourself on bad days now? You know, what I, the most important thing that I've developed is a morning ritual. And uh, it's, it's, I, when I teach it, I start with 40 minutes, 10, 10, 10, 10, 10 minutes on four different areas that I'll share with you. Uh, SPEM is the acronym I use, spiritual, physical, emotional, mental. And it is simply, it's not complicated. It's simply recognizing that two things. One, you get to choose who you are. We live in a world where we've let everybody else tell us who we are, either our position or how much money we make or what's expected of us or all these externalities are trying to shape you and me into what they need us to be to satisfy their desires. So we conform or we rebel or we do whatever, but it's none of it is, okay, this is who I want to be in the world. And so the first choice is to make, make a decision. Who am I? And so my, I have a page of declarations and they're not just words. They're 
well-thought-out things of who am I? And so it includes things like I am a beacon of light. I am a vessel of love. I am a conduit of power. Okay, it's easy to say those words, but what does that actually mean? How does a beacon of light show up in every conversation? Uh, what, what do they say? What do they do? How does that manifest in the world? I am honesty and speak only truth. Wow, if I say that, it means I gotta, I gotta think about every word that I say. And the, the fun thing about it is nobody has to agree Nobody has to give you permission or tell you it's okay. Your declaration of who you want to be in the world is yours. You can change it anytime you want. But if it's going to motivate you, as you ask, it has to be who you really want, what you really want to be, you, yourself. So the first thing is to, un to make some decisions, at least to start with, about who you want to be. The morning ritual that I have is a preparation for that beingness every day. So it's 10 minutes spiritual work, which you can meditate, you can pray, you can think, you can do whatever you need to do. Not about stuff you got to do, but just your connection to higher truth. Like, who do you want to be? P is physical, to honor your body. So stretching, physical, whatever it is, but it's to pay homage to your physical container. E is emotional, which is your relationships. So what I usually teach clients to do and what I do is think of three or four people, two or three if you don't have a lot of time, like and send some messages. Maybe it's a relationship I want to repair. Maybe it's one I want to strengthen. But send out some information and messages of love and of connection. And M is mental. I have like 30 books over there and stacks that I'm in the middle of. And I read something to stimulate my mind and to pay honor to all four of those parts of life. Now, that's an arbitrary division. I understand that. And my own morning ritual has grown from 40 minutes to two and a half hours. But it's the same thing. And it starts, oh, I can't do this. I don't have time. Uh. And it, when, it, when you realize that it really empowers you and helps you be that person, like I wouldn't skip my morning ritual now any more than I would run outside naked in minus 40 in the middle of winter. Like, you just don't because I love how I feel when I do that preparation. So that's what I do every day, including this morning, because I want to I want to make sure, I want to make sure I am who I say I am. Ah, fantastic. And, you know, on your journey, Obviously, you mentioned your wife now, but has there been anyone else who has been inspirational or been a role model for you? Well, two things. There's three things that are really powerful. One is the divine. I have cultivated a very, very intense, intimate connection with the divine. You can call it whatever you want, God, spirit, universe, higher self, I don't care. We all feel it. We all feel those pulls and tugs. What I notice is intentional development of that is just like intentional development of your arms, legs, or any other skill that you have. You can develop it, and it responds to intentional development. So God, if you will. My wife uh, is infinite in terms of that connection. And the third thing is various coaches that I've hired over the years because I feel like if you're not 
engaged in coaching yourself, getting coached, I don't know how you think that you're going to be a good coach. So I've used various coaches, many different ones over the years for different things. But to get myself coached toward my goals so that I have someone who's looking at me objectively and with an eye on being on my team and trying to help me, it's like a coach at the Olympics. Somebody who's there with you to try to help you get where you want to go. So God, my wife, and my coach, and that person, the third person changes over time, depending on what I'm doing and that kind of circumstance. So those are the three things that have really mattered and have helped me in the creation of the documents that I have that govern my life. And so that's, that's what I use. Now, fantastic. And you obviously mentioned earlier that you've written a lot of books as well. Well, you know, in the, my 30 years as an executive in the energy industry, I didn't think of myself as an author. I didn't write anything. Well, I wrote some technical papers, but I didn't really write any books or anything like that. But after the divine intervention and I changed my life, all of a sudden I realized I wanted to write. <clears throat> so I started writing. And the first thing I wrote was a five-volume series about meditation. And then I wrote my own story called Tightrope of Depression, uh, my journey from darkness, despair, and death to light, love, and life. And then I wrote the sequel to that. And then I wrote a business book called The Results Equation. And I wrote a book called The Story Arc, which is about how to write books. Because after I started writing them and got them going well, I realized I know how to do this. And so then I thought I should help people. So I started running workshops actually first about writing books. And then I thought... I should write this book. So I did. So that turned into one. And then I, I told you before we started, I, three and a half years ago, coming on four years in June, I died. I got a fatal illness and died and had a near death experience. So that spawned a couple books, meeting God at the door, conversations, choices, and commitments of a near death experience. And so, you know, yeah, I've got 16 that I've written and then six more underway. I just finished a book in December called Forgiveness, A Journey okay. of Courage to a Place of Freedom and Power. So if we can touch back to your near-death experience. You know, uh, that was 10 years after the original divine intervention. My wife and I went on a cruise, and we hadn't been on a cruise before, and we just, I don't know how we found it, a 10-day cruise in the Baltic Sea which I wasn't even sure where it was. I knew kind of, but I didn't realize it ran east and west mostly. So we went and it was you know, Helsinki and Tallinn, Estonia and Oslo and St. Petersburg, which given what's going on in Europe now, I don't know if anybody will ever visit again, but okay. So we did all those cities and at the end I got sick. We were in Oslo getting ready to come home and he had a terrible fever. And the last day in Oslo, and then the, the day we left, that was on a Monday, and then Tuesday we flew home to, from Amsterdam to Edmonton, and I was I had a bad fever. And today, of course, they would throw you out the window on an airplane, but in those days they didn't. It was pre-COVID, so they just brought me ice and took care of me. Uh, on Tuesday night I got home, and, you know, I kept thinking it'll get it'll get you know, it'll get, I'll get over it. It'll be okay. So I didn't go to the doctor by Friday, which was day five. I did finally go to the walk-in clinic, which they have here in Canada and they wouldn't let me in. The lady there who's running, it took one look at me and said, you can't come in here. There's nothing to do for you. Get out of here, go to the ER. So I went to the university of Alberta medical center here in Edmonton, 
And, uh, you know, you go to the ER, depending on how busy they are and what's going on, it might take you an hour or two, maybe three, if you're not doing well. And there's too many people. Well, in 10 minutes, I was in a private room. I didn't even know they had private rooms in the ER. The only thing I'd ever seen before was those little partitions with curtains and stuff. 10 minutes, I'm in a private room with the door, the door shut, and the doctors are all over me. And I thought, oh, crap, this is not good. And um, they admitted me to the hospital. They told me, this, you at least have pneumonia in both lungs, but there's something else way worse, and we don't know what it is yet. And then they came back and told me, yeah, we're going to have to put you in ICU. This is all on the same day, all Friday, Friday afternoon, Friday evening. Then they came back and said, yeah, we're going to have to put you in biological isolation, which if you don't know, that's like biohazard, double door, airlock kind of things. You have to suit up to come in, all that stuff. And then they came in and said, yeah, do we have permission to intubate you and do anything we need to do to preserve your life? And I'm like, what? <laughs> and I said, yes. And so it's Friday night late. And by then, I'm like just really going downhill. I got my phone out, and I could barely operate it, and I sent Joy a text. I'd sent her home earlier in the evening because we had dogs and cats, and I said, just go home, take care of them, come back tomorrow morning, and they're going to keep me here anyway, so whatever. So I sent her a text, and it was three lines. Line one was um, ICU. Line two was isolation slash intubation, and line three said, I may be dying. And the reason I put that third line is there is after he asked that question, I went into a meditative state to see if I could feel inside my body what was going on. And all of a sudden, I had this feeling like my body and spirit were separating, like I could feel this sort of unzipping. And I thought, holy crap, I think I'm dying. So I sent her that text, and she didn't see it because she was asleep. And about 3 in the morning, the hospital called her, and she got the call you never want to get. The nurse said, are you coming? And she said, what? And then she saw my text. So somewhere in that process, I did a crash cart, crash code, green, blue, red, orange, black, whatever it is, and my heart stopped. So um, I died. When I came to energetically, I was in a, a room. It was gray. The walls were gray. The ceiling was gray. The floor was gray. And I could see over my shoulder, and I was horizontal, like I was on the stretcher in the ER. Or the ICU, I mean. I could see over my shoulder there a, a doorway. And I could see that it was white on the other side of the doorway, and it was gray on my side. The light wasn't streaming through, but white on that side, gray on my side, and I wanted to be at the door. So then I was at the door, and I was leaning on the door jamb on my right shoulder. And across from me, leaning on the door jamb on the other side, was someone else looking at me. And uh, he looked at me, and he just asked one question. He said, uh, do you want to come home? And, you know, in, a, in an instant, I, you know, you know who you're talking to, what the doorway is, what the question means, and all the rest. And so we talked for a while about it, and I finally said, you know, I've been working for the last 10 years doing the best I can, helping and doing the stuff since the stuff that had happened 10 years before. And I finally said, uh, I'm not done. Okay. And so the next day, I'm sure, I'm quite sure that's when they were able to restart my heart. 
But the next day, I was back at the door, and um, the subject of the previous day wasn't brought up. And so then it was like, okay, you're going to stay. What are you going to do? So we start talking about coaching and helping people, stuff that I was doing. And then I had a really intense experience that felt like I was being fed information and knowledge, kind of like, I don't know if you've ever seen that movie, uh, Contact, with Jodie Foster, where these aliens, be, okay, that movie. Yeah. Uh, all right, well, that's where she dropped through the thing and that intense, it sort of felt like that. I felt like if I hadn't been in a protective bubble, I would have been incinerated. Like all this information and vision was happening, blah, 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 and it just was super intense. So anyway, that conversation was really long. And at the end of that experience right there, still in the conversation, four things were really clear. Number one, we're all divine beings. We're created intentionally. There's no accident about any of this. Number two, we all have gifts and talents. We kind of know that, but this was like complete knowledge now. Number three is we all have mission and purpose. And we were not only, we not only agreed to do that, but we were stoked. We were excited about what we had to do here. And the fourth thing was all the help we need is available from both sides of that door. So I said, well, since that's available, since that's true, like why do we settle for crumbs? And I don't know if in the economy of heaven, brevity is a virtue, but the answer was four words. He looked at me and he said, because you don't believe. And I, I felt like, duh. I didn't say duh, but I felt like that. <laughs> like, okay, what can I do? How can I do something about that? Oh, glad you asked. So then what came after that was um, a framework about how to work on changing beliefs. A, a process, a belief change process that can work on even long-held beliefs we've had about how to explore changing beliefs so that we can access all that help and what's available. So I wrote that up. I didn't put it in Meeting God at the Door because it was a little bit off topic and would have been too long, so I put it in another book called The Book of Context, which is a, that whole belief change process. It was funny because after I wrote, I wrote those two books at the same time because they were really the experience and then the framework. I had a client who's a retired physician write the foreword for the book of context and he read it and um, loved it and he wrote some nice things in the foreword. And then he spent uh, an hour trying to convince me to change the name of the book. And he said, you know, if you'd written the book of joy or the book of love, he said, we'd understand it. But the book of context? And I waited until he was done. He was trying to explain to me that, you know, people wouldn't understand all that. And when he got all done, I looked, looked at him. I said, Mort, the name is not negotiable. <laughs> <laughs> so he laughed and, you know, there it is, book of context. Anyway, so... That was the end of the second conversation. And the third conversation, the last one, was back at the door the next day, the very same thing. And people have asked me, how do you know it was the next day? I have no idea. I just know it was the next day. So there we are. And I'm really excited. I'm repeating in my mind all the stuff I knew before, all the buzzing with excitement about everything. 
And um, <clears throat> the third conversation was just one question. He looked at me again and he said, are you sure? And I felt like I was hyperventilating, like, what do you mean, am I sure? Am I stupid? Have I missed something? Am I biting off more than I can? What do you mean, am I sure? Ah! Right? And so we, we talked about it for a while, and I thought about it from every possible angle. Finally, I said, um, uh, yes, I'm sure. Okay. So nothing was said, but that last conversation ended with a finality that I knew we were done. And then um, some two weeks later, I was... I came out of the coma. I was in a coma for like two and a half weeks. <clears throat> and so then I recovered and uh, came out of the hospital after a total of a month, two and a half weeks or so in a coma. And so that's what happened. And since then, I'm, you know, that's, it hasn't really changed the commitment I had to helping people discover who they really are and to live into that, but it has given them more clarity and focus. Ah, fantastic. And obviously, you know, given the amount of books you've written, um, is there more in the pipeline? Yeah, I've got six underway. I just finished one in December that'll be published at the end of this month. It's called Forgiveness. Uh, it's a book about forgiveness. The subtitle is A Journey of Courage to a Place of Freedom and Power. And there's several others that are in various stages of production. I'll have two more done this year. And I've got at least the next two years, three books a year, uh, planned out, publication schedule. And I, 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 I've learned how to do that and do it well and do it quickly. And so I don't really intend to stop at least one or two a year. No, fantastic. And... <laughs> for yourself on your coaching pathway, where, where would you like to see yourself within the next five years if we can put a time frame on it? Yeah, uh, you mean to get me to my own coaching, to get coached yeah. or clients no, that I'm- No, no, so for, for you, where, where would you like to see your business grow? You know, I do three things right now. I do a lot of free stuff. I have a podcast with hundreds of episodes. I appear on a lot of, folks like you uh, trying to spread a message of opportunity and possibility. And I do a lot of Facebook posts and LinkedIn and YouTube videos and everything. That, that is to introduce people to the idea of growth and self-improvement. Uh, the, the first le level of business kind of stuff is I have little group coaching programs that are small groups. Sometimes they're to write books and sometimes they're to business like intensives that last 90 days, those I will keep. And then I have private clients, which I meet either with every week or every couple of weeks. Uh, I don't see that model changing. Uh, I'm grateful for the clients I have. I have a sign on my wall that says I never look for clients. I look for people to love, opportunities to serve, and problems to solve. No, fantastic. And so I don't have a plan except that, and I, it takes care of itself. I find people that are ready to do the work, to make changes. They're responding to their own yes. Like something's happened in them to say, I need to work. I, I, I meet with people, and they, we talk for an hour or two, and sometimes two or three or four conversations. And I don't even talk about business until I know enough about them to see if they, they have something they're working on and they're willing to do the work and they want to level up and do some real good work and I think I can help them, then and only then do we talk about yeah. business. Oh, it's been great having you on the show, uh, Kellen. 
So if people want to find your books or find you online, where can they do that? You know, that's one fun thing about having a weird name like Kellen Flukiger. I can't hide. If you spell my name correctly, you can find me on Google, on Amazon, on Facebook, on LinkedIn, on YouTube. My website is my name. I had no trouble getting that URL, right? <laughs> so if you want to connect with me, all you have to do is spell my name right, and you'll be able to do that, and I'd be happy to have a conversation just to get acquainted and to see what, what's up. So if you want to connect, you have an invitation. No, fantastic. And then just before we round up, do you have any questions for myself? Yeah, tell me what drives you to do this work. Okay, so, you know, we spoke off air earlier um, about how the podcast came about, you know, but for me, the thing was, was losing weight. Back in 2013, I was this wee fat chubby guy <laughs> sitting on a pool. <laughs> I used to be a lifeguard um, and I wanted to lose weight. I was going on holiday. Okay. So I spoke to these two gentlemen, uh, Paul Wallace, and Scott McCutcheon, two magnificent guys who work within Glasgow uh, as gym instructors. And so basically Paul and Scott created a, a gym program, gave me nutrition advice, gave me classes that I could go to. And then on the back of that information, I followed those plans and I lost two stone within six weeks. And, you know, on the back of that, I was like, wow, those guys helped me. What can I do to repay that now? So now I'm like, hmm, can I go and do my course and help others? So I put myself through my qualifications. And that's what I've done. And then on the back of that, that, I'm like, okay. So I've started to help my, a, lot, a lot of people around, you know, Glasgow um, online coaching now as well. But the reason that I've started doing the podcast is that I've realized within the world, not just health and fitness, because you probably find this in all industries, you get a small percentage of people who are very negative, right? So what can I do to help that? Can I create a positive atmosphere? Can I create a positive message and get it out there? Yeah, hell yeah, I can. <laughs> so that's the reason why the name of the show is No Excuses, Real Inspiration. So I love that. And I want to honor that again, because it is a labor of love. And your your weight loss journey is really no different than anybody's story about living an old story, an old script, allowing yourself to be overtaken by that, whether you become unhealthy in any one of a bunch of ways, emotionally, physically, and then suddenly deciding that you're going to take control of the levers of your own life and be somebody else and add good to the world. So thank you. I really appreciate the opportunity to meet you and to, to visit and to get to know you a little better. No, it's been great. Thank you. You're absolutely welcome.